All right, so tonight is called The Christian Delusion, part two. Uh, the subtext I have is the Bible is not the word of God, um, question mark. The section here uh, in part two of The Christian Delusion, which is the series that this is based on, says why the Bible is not God's word. And so, but before we begin, I'd like to give you an illustration. So just imagine someone looking at the Bible as a science textbook. And then imagine that person is able to work out contemporary science from what they read. And then imagine that scientists discover that their own theories were wrong. And that one person then sees that the Bible was untrue all along. What would you say? Imagine that the situation was uh, the belief that the sun revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus comes and says, no, actually the earth orbits around the sun. And that people would say, well, that proves the Bible to be an error. Is that sensible? Does that prove the Bible is wrong? No, I mean, I, I think it's simply a misunderstanding of what the Bible actually claims and therefore what we should expect from it. But this is commonly done by Christians and I believe by the authors of the book that we'll be looking at. Uh, but even in misreading it, they bring very good questions to us as Christians. And I believe that Christians have not often thought through these things about the, that the nature of the biblical text. And so I hope to do that with you tonight. Just as last week I said, I feel like this is more of a workshop type of atmosphere. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't have a lot to say. It just means that I'm still making sure that I know what I'm saying is what I want to say, uh, because this is a dry run. I don't know if I'll come back to it, but you know that's just my posture with it. So as I mentioned, this is the second part of the series. Uh, in the first one, uh, it's, a, it's a talk on the Christian delusion, Why Faith Fails by John Leftis. In the first part, I talked about the OTF, the outsider test for faith, which um, Leftis says, basically, a Christian needs to look at their faith as they do at all other faiths and all other religions uh, with the same skepticism. Uh, and I explained that ultimately it came from a naturalistic presupposition. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a bit more. But this one is on the Bible. So they use the outsider test for faith or the skepticism, this naturalistic skepticism toward the Bible. And so through these three essays or three chapters um, by, by different authors, this book claims that the Bible is too scientifically inaccurate too textually inconsistent, and too easily misinterpreted to be divinely inspired. Um, now, what's the idea of divine inspiration for these authors? Um, that's never clear. Uh, let me make a stab at what they presume, that it means for them that God could not have impressed his special will upon the authors of the Bible to communicate that will or his plan because the Bible is simply too convoluted and inconsistent. But is that true? Can you say what those, the ones were that they said were? Too scientifically inaccurate, too textually inconsistent, and too 
easily misinterpreted or too unclear to be divinely inspired. And I will deal with those three in turn. <clears throat> so I'll look at these three essays in some detail in a moment, but for now I want to, before then, do some kind of readdressing of these presuppositions of the authors as I did last week more at length. Uh, so this is, if you're taking notes, just my little section called Naturalism and Religion. Um, so uh, I want to look at this broader worldview that they have. And so it functions a bit like a review, very, very briefly. In the first part, the authors assumed that since they addressed described ways in which people became Christians through cultural influence, through psychological influence, that their faith is somehow invalidated, as if faith should not include these things at all to be true faith. Um, if a person has similar psychological experiences as another from a different religion, therefore the Christian claiming conversion, for instance, is merely stating a psychological fact rather than a spiritual or a godly or a true one. A Christian should not necessarily claim that the psychological effects of conversion are any different from any other faith. But it would be the same as saying that the psychological impact of Christian music should be completely different than the experience of some other music. Yet the Christian can say that just because one is affected similarly psychologically does not disprove that a true conversion of their heart hasn't happened or has happened. Rather, what this betrays is a philosophical naturalism. That is a belief that all things can be explained through natural causes. It reduces, it reduces, and so this is what naturalism does. It reduces the explanation to one certain aspect like psychology, and it feels that it explains all the other aspects away. So if you can describe the psychological uh, impact or effects of conversion, therefore that explains away any other spiritual dynamic or aspects, for instance. Uh, and so that's basically the worldview so how does that impact look at the Bible? So this is a little section I would consider naturalism and the Bible. The one that we just looked at is naturalism and religion. This is naturalism and the Bible. So with this worldview, they turn their gaze like Sauron onto the Bible. Um, before it begins, it does not presume that God exists. And therefore, it is impossible for them to believe that the book is divinely inspired. They can't and do not begin there. Yet for some reason, people believe that it is or that it was. So instead of looking at why people believe this book to be divinely inspired, the authors want to show how simply impossible it is. Uh, they want to show this through the principle of analogy. Um, so the principle of analogy is a common form of how historical studies have been done since the 19th century. And that's comparing an account to present normal or common human experience in order to sift what really happened, quote unquote. So the principle of analogy is, uh, has been applied to narratives, particularly historical narratives, and discounting anything that is, not, that is beyond normal or common human experience in order to know what really happened. So for example, this would discount miracles from any quote unquote true, um, true uh, account of history. Um, that's not because miracles are disproven, 
but they simply are not common. And perhaps the better, uh, the better explanation is coincidence, superstition. So any story that includes miracles must be discounted and considered untrue. Uh, this is what exactly what was done with the search for the historical Jesus. So they removed all the miracles, they removed all the supernatural sayings, um, and what you end up with is an ultimately a failed prophet that looks much like a 19th century German intellect or intellectual. Uh, and the reason that you have miracles or supernatural stuff is just basically a group of people who become disillusioned with their leader being killed by Rome and uh, they basically make false claims in order to prop up an institution for them to have power over a group of people and it took off. Now this book doesn't take issue with miracles. It just doesn't deal with it at all, um, even though it would have a problem with miracles. Um, it's just an example for you to understand their pre presuppositions through these principles of analogy. So what do they claim? I'm gonna quickly look at these three essays in turn before dealing with them a little bit more extensively in my response. So the first essay is by Babinski. <clears throat> um, he says that the Bible is too scientifically inaccurate to be God's inspired word. Uh, Tobin is the one that says the Bible is too textually inconsistent to be God's divine word. And then Loftus himself, the editor of the book, will say that it's too unclear or too easily misrepresented to be God's divine word. So with Babinski, the Bible rather reflects an ancient cosmology where the authors believed the world to be flat and the sky solid. Um, and we see similarities, perhaps even influence from other ancient cosmologies, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, where we find stories about the creation of men from dirt and a flood covering the earth uh, with a man rescuing animals in a boat. So this reveals, according to Babinski, that the Bible is not unique as revelation, but simply another story of ancient cosmology giving wrong information about the earth and the universe. So that's, in sum, the first essay. In the next essay, Tobin says it's too textually inconsistent to be God's divine word. It contradicts itself, like Paul versus James, or around the issue of slavery. It includes myths, uh, failed prophecies, even forgeries, like Second Peter or some of Paul's letters. And it's lacking totally archaeological verification. This shows that the book is not only ancient, but also reflects nothing scientifically verifiable. That's the second essay. And then in the final essay, Loftus himself, the editor, the guy who was the former preacher who became an agnostic, he argues that even if you put all this aside, all this was called higher criticism, that is kind of methods of biblical scholarship, we can see, if we set all that aside, we can still see that the Bible is simply not God's word because it's so unclear, so dang confused. So unclear that it has led many people to interpret it differently and even go to war against one another. Uh, this is what happened with the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century in Europe, where Christians were shedding the blood of other Christians because they disputed doctrine, Catholics versus Protestants. <clears throat> If God is truly omniscient and omnipotent, Loftus is arguing, 
he could and would have given us a clearer explanation. But it isn't clear and shows more of the patchwork of a human agenda maintaining superstitious beliefs. So these are three pretty heavy hitting essays. And it's hard to deal with each one uh, exhaustively. And I'm not even going to attempt that. But I will be dealing with them quite a lot. <laughs> Depends on how exhaustive or exhausting you think I've been. Uh, so in each of these, you see the outworking of this naturalistic worldview. In the first, it is believed that if the Bible shares the cosmology of the ancient world and doesn't have the modern scientific account, it's therefore untrue. In the second, it's believed if the Bible's depth, if paper thin, easily exposed as inconsistent within and without, as is with archaeology and contemporary myths, <clears throat> it must be false. And in the third is believed that if God does not communicate in a way that's clear and desirable to the modern reader, namely the democratic, free-loving people, as Loftus claims, God could not have authored, inspired, or directed these authors to write these books in the Bible. Um, I think they're making the same mistake as many Christians do when they try to treat the Bible and Genesis particularly as a scientific textbook. It simply isn't that. If one treats the Bible as a scientific textbook, makes it, tries to force it to work with contemporary science in whatever way, and then someone comes along and discovers that it doesn't square with the newest findings, then somehow the Bible is false. However, the problem is treating the Bible as a scientific textbook in the first place. It's a misunderstanding of how to read the Bible and then condemning it because it doesn't fit one's expectations. Rather, the reader needs to take the Bible as it is, how it presents itself, rather than what we want it to be. So I'm going to respond a little bit more at length now at these accusations, at these three accusations. <clears throat> Uh, like I said last week, I want to honor these people and their questions. Um, I've seen a lot of people come through with a lot of distrust and anger toward Christianity. Most of these authors have come out of Christianity. Uh, some were more ensconced than others, but all of them left because they felt that their questions were not being addressed. And they didn't feel that they felt that there was an incongruity between reality and stated truth. Now, it seems that this is not even an indifference or a disinterest, but an actual anger toward the church and Christians, so much so that they want people to disbelieve. They feel that it's their aim to help people disbelieve. Uh, it's not just helping Christians think or something like that. Um, now, at Labrie, we see people who are exactly the same. Uh, they have sincere questions only to be rebuffed by pastors or by people in their Bible study or fellow Christians or whatever. And they're told just to believe. And they have these questions ferment in their hearts until they can't take it anymore and they reject it. Um, and so I want to take these people very seriously, Babinski, Tobin, and Loftus. And I want to take them as dear creations of the creator <laughs> and I want to take their question, questions seriously. Uh, and I think that these questions are really remarkable questions that cause us to reflect very deeply 
Um, these questions or accusations that they bring up are actually echo a lot of resentment and questions students have. And maybe you yourself have these questions from time to time and wonder, and you don't necessarily know what source to go to or don't know who to ask, or even if you do ask, they don't know how to answer it. Uh, now, this is a topic that I really deeply love. And I hope that my excitement will be contagious <clears throat> because this is where it gets interesting. Okay. Not saying that they're not interesting. I'm just saying I'm more interesting. Um, I'm just tongue in cheek there. Okay. So let me deal first with Babinski and then I'm going to deal with Loftus and then Tobin because Tobin has the most layered attack. So Babinski is the one that says the Bible is too scientifically inaccurate. Uh, perhaps you remember it's because not only it shares the view of ancient cosmology, but because there's even same parallels or there's parallels to the same stories in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, so the flood narrative is in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, the creation of humanity and so on. And of what we have, the stories from the Babylonians and the Assyrians predate the writings of Genesis. What are we to do with that? And so uh, Babinski would say it's just a blatant imitation of ancient cosmologies and making it what their God, the God of Israel says, quote unquote. But really they're just borrowing the myths of other cultures. And this is the second point um, is that not only does it borrow blatantly from these ancient cosmologies, they also borrow the worldview of the pagan nations. We can see many parallels where the Babylonian God Marduk sounds very much like Israel's God. Let me quote a couple from Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian epic of creation. <clears throat> Quoting Enuma Elish about Marduk, Marduk shall be Lord of all the gods. No one among the gods shall make himself equal to him. Or elsewhere, Marduk established the holy heavens, creator of the earth above the waters, establisher of things on high, who made the world's religions. I mean, regions, sorry, who made the world's regions. He created places and fashioned the netherworld. Well, that sounds very similar <laughs> to passages about Yahweh about God's, um, the Israel's God. We also see that there's parallels, and this is more important and more particular to Babinski's accusation, is that there's also parallels in how nature is described. Specifically, we're told that the creation of the world came out of the waters, and that at the center was, there, uh, was the humanity of their people. So Adam is connected to Israel. And that the sky was made of a solid substance and the earth was flat. So the earth was flat and the sky solid. Um, even the gods stood up when the sky was so solid that the gods would stand on top of the sky. This blue sapphire like stone, perhaps lapis lazuli, is where God stands as he rules the earth and the universe. This was true of the Mesopotamian myths, but you also hear reference of that in the Bible. 
So in Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, uh, the elders and Moses uh, go up to meet God on the mountain. And uh, the author of Exodus writes, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So what you have then is that the Bible does not appear so unique. It's just a hackett job of borrowing from Mesopotamian myths. It's very much like the ancient cosmologies in language and in thought concept. Does this show that the Bible is not God's revelation and that it is simply another ancient text that has gotten blown way out of proportion? I hope you feel the weight of this accusation. So let me respond first in this way. So at the time of Paul, there was discovered that there were a lot of ancient letters written in the same way that Paul wrote his letters. In fact, many letters were very similar structure predating his letters by more than a century. He used the same Greek rhetoric and argumentative style. This has exposed that Mark's letters mark no difference than any other Greco-Roman letter and is therefore falsified in its accounting of the world. No, you wouldn't say that. I don't know if you, I hope you were following along with that. Uh, you wouldn't falsify that necessarily because just because someone else writes a letter or even modern day, let's say that a Christian writes a letter and then you find out a Buddhist writes a letter. Well, therefore the Christian's letter is discounted because they learn letter writing from the Buddhist. It doesn't discount it. It's just the genre. And so this is true for texts like Genesis and elsewhere, like Job in the Old Testament. The authors borrowed from their culture does not falsify their accounting of that culture or of reality. In fact, we see this type of borrowing in Revelation 12. So in the New Testament, when John writes of the pregnant woman and the dragon. Um, Yeah, I won't go. I have a quote from Gordon Fee about that, but basically I won't read it. But what uh, what John is doing is taking the ancient myth and re revisit. Actually, let me quote it because uh, it's here. It's important, Fee writes about Revelation 12, for the modern reader to know that the whole scene is a common one in ancient mythology as well. Thus, the first readers of this book, mostly Gentile converts in the province of Asia, could hardly have missed here an echo of the well-known myth from their own history. In that myth about the birth of Apollo to Leto, wife of Zeus, the dragon Python hoped to slay the child Apollo, but he was protected by Poseidon. When grown, Apollo then slew the dragon. But whatever the coincidences that may exist between that myth and the essential Christian story, John's imagery has affected its total transformation into the basic historical story of Christ, who through his cross and resurrection thus defeated the dragon. At the same time, the astute Bible, biblical reader will see something of a replay, but in a radically new way, of the scene in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. But now the woman withstands the snake and her child is rescued by God, who also protects the woman in the wilderness. So what you have is that you have this kind of ancient mythology at work in Revelation. 
which we consider much more modern, even though it's still ancient. And the biblical writers are borrowing in order to tell the story to an ancient culture of the historical nature of Jesus. Well, what we see um, when it comes to the creation account in Genesis, for instance, it's written as mythology in this ancient sense, not in a modern sense. In the modern sense, mythology means it's a fanciful fairy tale. But in the ancient sense, mythology is basically a literary genre that speaks of origins and functions. Not of how the world works physically, but metaphysically. What's the meaning of humanity? Is life orderly or chaotic? What went wrong? That the author of Genesis wrote according to this genre reveals the audience to whom the author is writing. He's writing to an audience that would have been familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, it doesn't mean that it's false, but it means that, there, that this author is rewriting it in a way that the audience understood according to that, those rules of genre. So this piece in the Bible may be aimed at benefiting us, but we must always first ask of the text, to whom was it originally written, and how might we come to understand what it claims for us today? And what does it claim for itself? So we must be careful to make, uh, we must be careful not to make it say what we want it to say or to answer questions that it's not answering as a science textbook, for instance. What can then we expect of it to say of modern scientific findings? John Walton in his book, The Lost, uh, <clears throat> the Lost World of Genesis 1, John Walton wrote a whole series of books that are wonderful. Whether you agree with them or not, they're very helpful. John Walton says in The Lost World of Genesis 1 that we must allow ancient cosmology to speak according to its own categories, not ours, lest we fail to understand what the Genesis account is saying, particularly in regards to modern science. And so let me quote him at length. I have some long quotes, but they're very great. I just couldn't not have them. Um, and so this is Walton about Genesis as an ancient cosmology in relation to modern science. If God were intent on making his revelation correspond to science, we have to ask which science we are well aware that science is dynamic rather than static by its very nature. Science is in a constant state of flux. If we were to say God's revelation corresponds to quote unquote true science, we adopt an idea contrary to the very nature of science. What is accepted as true today may not be accepted as true tomorrow because what science provides is the best explanation of the data at the time. The best explanation is accepted by consensus and often with a few detractors. Science moves forward as ideas are tested and new ones replace old ones. So if God aligned revelation with one particular science, it would have been unintelligible to people who lived prior to that time of science. And it would be obsolete to those who live after that time. So let's say that God wrote about science of this day. Well, maybe in a thousand years, science would be so understood in a completely different way that it would make no sense. We gain nothing by bringing God's revelation in accordance, into accordance with today's science. 
In contrast, it makes perfect sense that God communicated his revelation to his immediate audience in terms they understood. So what Walton is saying is that uh, it would be strange to try to expect God's revelation to speak in scientific terms that we know now. Uh, so ridiculous because maybe even 50 years from now, it will, our scientific understanding will be different as it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Now, the creation account in Genesis does have something to say to us about modern science, or I should say all sciences. It does, it does not speak about many aspects of the physical universe, but it does orient us to how to think about that world. Is it merely a meaningless expanse where we're all on but a pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan would say? How are we to believe that the world is orderly and that our investigations into the physical world are even worthwhile? The Genesis account gives us reasons that naturalistic science cannot. It also calls us to be wise, godly in how we do science rather than using it just for our own agenda. Okay, so that's uh, my dealing with Babinski. Now I want to deal with Loftus. Who says that, um, that the Bible cannot be God's inspired word because it's unclear and has caused a lot of hurt and conflict over those different interpretations. And so Loftus quotes approvingly of Robert G. Ingersoll, who was a 19th century American agnostic. And Loftus says, Every Christian sect is a certificate that God has not plainly revealed his will, his will to man. To each reader, the Bible conveys a different meaning about the meaning of this book called a revelation. There has been areas of war and centuries of sword and flame. If written by an infinite God, he must have known that these results must follow and thus knowing he must be responsible for all. So what Loftus in that quote is basically saying that God should have communicated better. If he had communicated better, then we wouldn't have had these wars. We wouldn't have had all this crusades under the cross. What Loftus then does for the rest of his essay is to take many biblical verses in which he finds horrific passages, like passages condemning gay relationships or interpretations of those verses uh, or verses, wow, I really butchered this sentence. Let me start again. What Loftus then does for the rest of his essay is to take many biblical verses with which he finds horrific, like passages condemning gay relationships, or interpretations of those verses, um, like the exploitation of the earth through the idea of dominion, or the arguments for pro-slavery in the American South. So he's saying that not only is the Bible horrific, but... Uh, and that God should be blamed for that, but God should also be blamed for people misunderstanding and misapplying it. <clears throat> so what can we say to Loftus in this regard? I have a multi-layered response, okay? In fact, I have at least four. First, um, I often tell people that an infallible Bible does not assure an infallible interpretation. Just because two people disagree over the Bible does not make the Bible false. 
What needs to be looked at is if the Bible contradicts itself. I'll be looking at that in a moment in the light of the final essay, but here I'm just simply saying that a difference in opinion around the Bible does not make the Bible divided or false. Okay, secondly, <clears throat> that Christians fought to kill one another in the 17th century goes against the very biblical command to love one another, particularly the sister and brother in Christ. So these people who disagreed over doctrine failed to abide in the Bible fully. Jesus says that people will know you, that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus is saying the proof is in your love, not just in doctrinal disputes. And sadly, this has not been the case, and this is why I believe Europe is so far away from the gospel, and sadly why so many people walk away from Christ himself. And that should sadden us very deeply. <clears throat> so the first, an infallible uh, Bible doesn't mean infallible interpretation. Secondly, that, uh, that people misapply the Bible in horrific ways doesn't make the Bible false either. Thirdly, the Bible itself speaks of, its, of God's own people misunderstanding his commands within the Bible. So it's not just applying the love principle toward today's people, but there's testimony within the Bible of people misunderstanding and misapplying God's commands. Israel receives the commands from God off the mountain right after they have been liberated from the bondage of Egypt. And what are they doing at that very moment? <laughs> They're worshiping a golden calf who they say delivered them from Egypt. Time and again, Israel fails to understand and obey what God has said clearly. We even see Jesus' disciples misunderstand continually what Jesus is saying. Uh, he told them that he must be killed, and yet they're arguing over who's the greatest. Even in the New Testament, we see a disagreement between Paul and Peter. So what Loftus claims is God's problem um, is um, what Loftus claims as God's problem is testified to within Scripture as our, our sinful condition, refusing to believe, obey, or abide of what God says to us. Fourthly, Loftus argues from the perspective that our current moral climate of democratic, free-loving people causes one to look at these previous statements or commands as morally unjust and disgusting. For example, you have within the law of Moses the use of slaves as property. This really, really makes Loftus angry, and I think justifiably. This applies to various points in the law to women as well. How can a good God have spoken in such a way and call it revelation? Now, the law is a very tricky subject, not because it contains horrendous things such as these, which the Christian can lament, but because it has had been a long-standing debate on how the law relates to the gospel. How are we to understand it? So I can't go at length between the whole relationship between the law and the gospel, um, but I do want to say a couple of brief things. And when I mean brief, I mean somewhat brief. <clears throat> so this is the fourth. Okay, so I'm going to have some subcategories to this fourth point of trying to, um, to understand why are these things within the law 
especially as we have morally progressed and look backwards. So these are the subcategories. One, the law was an accommodation to the hardness of the human heart. Within the law, there was the possibility of divorce. Yet Jesus says that the certificate was given due to the hardness of hearts, but God's intention was not for divorce. What God put together, let no one take apart. What this shows is that the law has a character of accommodation, cultural accommodation. So it's speaking of a culture that would have slaves, that would have been treated like property. And that the law is speaking to that culture within that moment. <clears throat> Two, as a subcategory, we next see that much of the law was temporary. We see this through the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood. They served in place to maintain the relationship of the people in a culturally accommodated way to God. And it taught them that they could not be in right relationship without this atonement. So basically the law temporarily had sacrificial system to give, keep them and teach them about their relationship with God. Nevertheless, it also taught them that it could never be permanent, that a more permanent uh, thing was needed, which we discover is Jesus and the cross. And so the New Testament is that pains to explain the temporary nature of things within the law. Three, uh, we see adjustments. So this is the third subtext or subunit, subpoint. Lastly, we see adjustments to principles that were at work in these laws and at work behind these laws. So they were not to own slaves, but if they did, they were to treat slaves in a certain way that God asked or commanded. But this spelt the end to slavery ultimately, not from the New Testament or from Jesus but from the Old Testament itself, that the seeds of the end of slavery were, were within the law and the Old Testament itself. Now, this isn't to explain all the difficult things about the law, but it's just to situate understanding God's commands in context. And then a final word for under fourth point. We should be careful not to judge ancient cultures so quickly as if our culture is without sin, without exploitation, without agenda. We may end up regarding our choices in our culture as morally superior in our time, but in overtime, we may prove that they're absolutely untrue. But we can deal with that later. Okay, so I dealt with Babinski, that the Bible is too scientifically inaccurate. I dealt with Loftus, that it is uh, that the Bible is too easily misrepresented and too unclear to be God's word. And now I want to deal with Tobin, who says that it's too textually inconsistent. Uh, this is one of the hardest chapters to try to deal with because it's so multi-layered. So I hope you can hold on to the reins. Follow me here. Uh, so this final... <clears throat> uh, he says that it fails to be God's word internally, internal contradictions, and externally, archaeology, for example. He says that modern scholarship shows us that the Bible is inconsistent with itself, is not supported by archaeology, contains fairy tales, contains failed prophecies, and contains many forgeries. So as you can imagine, that's a lot, and each one could have a lecture on its own, as Loftus chapter could, so could Babinski's. 
Okay, now we can skip the accusation of the Bible being full of fairy tales, as it's so similar to the point that Babinski makes about borrowing from ancient cosmologies. And false prophecies may also be dealt with quickly, simply because each one would have to be taken into account. So if you have specific false failed prophecies in mind, please ask. Um, but I believe it's Tobin's simple misunderstanding of how prophecy works <clears throat> and how they were interpreted in later events. Um, if you want examples later, I can speak to them. Um, <clears throat> for example, quickly that he says, oh, well, a prophecy was about a historical figure in relation to Israel or Cyrus, but later got applied to Jesus. These New Testament writers applied it to Jesus, um, Jesus even though it was historically someone else or a different nation or something like this. But prophecy functions as foretelling and that they can be repetitions uh, that God can speak to the character of an event in the present moment that will also be proven later in another historical event. Uh, so it's not necessarily a one and done type of rule with prophecy. It can actually, the, the prophecy might be partially filled by a country or a person and then more fully fill, fulfilled in Jesus or even the kingdom to come as an example. But you can ask me later. He also says that there is too inconsistent with itself. So I've dealt with the, uh, the accusation that's full of fairy tales, the accusation that there's false prophecies or failed prophecies. The third one is that is inconsistent in itself, which I believe also can be handled quite quickly. And I'm handling it quickly, not because I want to disparage it, but simply due to time. Um, so the examples he gives of inconsistencies are that there's two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes disagree about the value of life, and that James and Paul disagree about the nature of salvation. Um, you can ask me more later about them. Uh, but for now, it's the basic problem of looking for an either or answer. Uh, there are very good reasons for these to be there, Genesis 1 and 2, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, James and Paul. Let's just look at James and Paul. Uh, Paul says, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Whereas James says, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this has long been a... Uh, a burr in people's pants about how to square this. And it looks pretty much contradictory, but within the context of their arguments, there is a simple explanation that doesn't take long to square unless you're not looking to square it up. Paul is arguing that the works of the law cannot justify a person to be saved by God. No matter how hard we try, we cannot justify ourselves before God. Yet, if I say I believe, and yet I do not care for the poor, then can I say that my life has been transformed by God? If we do not love one another, if we do not do good works, what can we say of our faith? We can put it more simply in this way, the way that I like to put it. Good works cannot accomplish grace, but grace accomplishes good works. 
good works cannot accomplish grace, but grace accomplishes good works. Okay, now let me look at the archaeological. Um, he says the grave of the archaeological dig, the biblical grave of archaeology. Kind of clever. But to say the Bible is not supported by archaeology is dealt with quite easily as well. The method that Tobin employs um, is that if something is not found archaeologically, then the claim is that the Bible is untrue if it's unfound. Yet, not only are archaeological digs also subject to interpretation, but they should also be used to falsify rather than verify a claim. Uh, this is what biblical scholars Proven, Long, and Longman III argue in a biblical history of Israel. Great summertime reading, if you're into that kind of thing. Excellent book on history and modern scholarship. Uh, so this is their basic argument. Uh, so remember I said that uh, modern archaeology around the Bible is to say that if it's unfound, it must be untrue. And they're saying, no, it should be falsification rather than verification. So people are trying to find something. And if they don't find it, then it's unverified. But they're saying it should be considered true in the text until it is found to be untrue. So finding something that would, finding something that would discount the claim. So does this essay continue back as a doc? The essay does. Uh, oh, in Tobin's essay does not include any of that. No. Uh, now, archaeologists have assumed a distrust of text, particularly the biblical text. And if evidence is not found, then obviously the Bible's false. However, archaeologists have not found evidence that has disproven biblical claims. It's just that they haven't found anything. Uh, as these authors write, very, very good, and hopefully you can follow this. So this is talking about... There are many archaeological digs that have found nothing of, of certain and important civilizations. We possess no Armenian stele from the territory of the contemporary kingdom of Damascus to Israel's north. Just let those words flow over you. Nor do we possess monumental inscriptions of any kind from 7th century Athens or Sparta. The later eras of Herod, the greatest builder Palestine has ever seen, and the Hasmonean rulers, nothing. Or the much later Carolinian Empire of the 8th century AD, this lack demonstrates, among other things, the folly of interpreting an absence of a particular sort of evidence as evidence of the absence of a particular people known from written sources. Uh, what they're saying there is, just because you don't find evidence of ancient Israel doesn't mean it's not there. Just but it doesn't. Um, uh, so he's saying, well, you have texts that say there's an ancient Israel, but modern scholarship has now led and very common in modern scholarship around ancient Israel is saying ancient Israel is a total construct. It's a fiction. And so they, a lot of people would talk about uh, the Old Testament as an Israeli attempt to make a land claim on Palestine. And the whole book is written in order to make a land claim. 
<clears throat> the fact, let me continue uh, quoting. The fact is that the data available to us apart from these written sources so far as the ancient world is concerned as far too fragmentary and insecure a base from which to make deductions of that kind. Basically saying ancient or archeology span gives us too little, too fragmentary evidence to almost claim anything about the ancient past as if the ancient past does not exist, even in places where we don't discount that. We just discount it because it's biblically written, but not written elsewhere. In fact, Ian Proven, who was a professor of mine, points out that even with written accounts, the biblical written account is often dismissed as religiously biased, while others are supposedly neutral. So the Bible is religiously biased, whereas Assyrian, Babylonian counts are neutral. So when they, so let me give you an example of how this works. But isn't Jerusalem like before the common era? Well, no, there are, but uh, yeah, but what happens? So in rural areas, you would have, um, so Julia's asking about Jerusalem, isn't there a lot there? So in rural areas, there's so little left over that can disappear. In major cities, there's often reconstruction and dismantling and building up and dismantling and building up that's hard to find evidence of earlier times. And so the busy places are hard because they're reconstructed, the rural places because they're so remote and hard to find. So you might see it undisturbed, but where are you gonna find it? Like it might say the region of Nain, but where is Nain and is that, and that's the ancient name, but which modern city is it? Well, Rachel was like buried by Bethlehem. Like do they, that's what it says. Yeah. Like do they, can they find those things? No, there's a lot of places that they cannot find. So they haven't found anything that directly corresponds to ancient Israel. There are things that uh, do correspond. So let me give an extra, okay, let me give this one, okay. So when they discovered, when archeologists or biblical scholars, or not biblical scholars, when archeologists, historians found or discovered an Assyrian account saying that Sargon II conquered Samaria, which disagreed with the biblical account, which claimed that Shalmaneser V did, it was believed as evidence against the biblical account. So the Assyrian account and the biblical account disagreed, and therefore they said the Assyrian account shows that the Bible is an error. However, they then discovered a Babylonian chronicle, which said that Shalmaneser V conquered Samaria at that time. Um, so this is just one example of how archaeologists are just as biased with evidence. And it starts with the presumption that the biblical account is false. Uh, you know, just as a side note, like they think that the Bible is religiously biased and the Syrian and the Babylonian accounts are neutral. But the irony of in like this Assyrian account and Proven goes over this is that these these are from royal annals. And you would think that because they're annals that they're just simple chronicles in that they are objective in the modern journalistic sense. But these are inscriptions that were put on by the king to speak of his own kingship and his right and his accomplishments. And if there's a record of another country speaking of someone's a king's failure, it doesn't show up in their own royal annals. 
first, that's bias. Second, these cultures were all religious. I mean, this is where the Epic of Gilgamesh and these types of accounts come from. And so these rural annals are religiously biased and they're even more biased um, because these are royal inscriptions where the biblical account is of their defeat and who defeated them. Uh, and so it just shows you the type of things happening behind the scenes in archaeology. And as they try to attempt to find the real truth through this principle of analogy, of trying to find what really happened by what's normal human experience, and then telling the biblical account is biased, it ends up all uh, in favor against the Bible of being true, even when they find evidence is considered almost insignificant, you know. Okay. So that's archaeology. I'm getting very close to um, my conclusion, but I have one more note about Tobin, and that's the list, and that's the note on forgeries. This is one of my favorite topics. Not forgery in and of itself, but what he thinks is forgery. Uh, and I think all these things will possibly bring out discussion later on. So... This is a word by Tobin on biblical books of uncertain authorship, particularly ones using the name of known authorities. So, for example, some think that 2 Peter may not have been written by the Apostle Peter. Perhaps it could have been written at a later time since it uses language that a simple Galilean fisherman would not use. The Greek is ornate. And it's very unique. It has lots of unique Greek words in it. And, uh, and it's very different language from the previous letter. And so some people think, well, maybe this person is writing in the style of Peter. And this was a very common practice called pseudepigrapha. Um, uh, people would take on these pseudonyms and then write on the basis of these people's names in order to have authority the apocalypse of Peter, the gospel of Judas, and so on and so on. It doesn't mean that these people were even Judas. It wasn't the gospel of Judas was not written by Judas. It was written many centuries later by a person through the perspective of Judas. So this was a common practice. And so it's not beyond the pale that second Peter could have been written by someone, not Peter. Did it say it's by Peter? Did the author but it says it is by Peter, but these suited the pseudepigrapha would claim to be that person. You know. um, what are we to do with this? Um, now, we would have to take each one, and he doesn't even, Tobin doesn't even really deal with Second Peter. He deals with other Paul's letters, which I think are a weaker standing. And so actually I talk about Second Peter, which I think is a stronger standing. But, um, but the early fathers would have known that there's questions and answers in here, but they chose to put it in canon because... Yeah, so I'll get to that. Julia makes a really astute point. And if you didn't hear it, you'll have to hear me say it. Um, but what this does is it misunderstands first of how letters were written in the New Testament, for example. This isn't the only thing to talk about forgeries, but just as an example. And that there was something, an ancient scribe would be called an amnusis. And the amnusis didn't just... If you quoted, the amnusis would not, uh, okay, I'll just call them ancient scribe for your sakes. Is it a nuisance? I'm a nuisance. Oh, man. I have to delete this from the recording later. Okay. So the amnusis 
the amnesis <laughs> would not just dictate. So if Paul was quoting or dictating the letter to be written to the Thessalonians, for example, he would be talking. So this amnusence wouldn't just receive dictation, but they had the freedom to stylize the letter. And so Peter could have dictated a letter to the churches in Rome, and the person who was writing the letter um, or copying the letter was using their own flourish and their own language. And maybe this person was very literary, like Liz, and thought that it should have some nicer big words rather than just the basic Galilean vocabulary. I mean, this is why Paul, Paul used these regularly. And this is why Paul at the end of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Here you have a, Paul is calling, saying, look, okay, now you can see my penmanship here. That's how you know it's me. And my, it's kind of like a seal of approval which tips the hat that he's not the one writing the letter, that he's dictating it and someone would have um, use of that. Now, there were some that he probably wrote and others that he would use, but someone like Peter who didn't have the may, maybe stylized Greek would depend on anamnesis more and also help um, helping him to know how to communicate. It, it's like if, uh, if I go to Korea and I want to write a letter and I, my Korean is very bad, which is not even very bad, it's totally non-existent. But if it was, let's say French, my French is really bad. If I was trying to write a letter in French, I would depend on someone like Brett who knew French better than I did. Um, and I would trust that he would convey my sense and my language. So this might blow your mind about how letters were written. And so there is biblical scholarship that look into the nature of these letters at the content and the possibility of authorship. And, the, and so the biblical scholars do look at these letters from distance and in time and try to figure out who wrote them. Could this be Peter? Could it have been an amnusis? Why is there a different language? How do we work this out? Well, Tobin makes this simplified explanation. This is a forgery rather than doing the basic homework of a biblical scholar. And one helpful item in which Julia brought up is to recognize which books were considered authoritative earlier on. And that what we see is throughout the known world was great acceptance of a common core. Uh, it, was, there was, it was very consistent. And so by the time that the council came together to canonize the New Testament and, uh, and attach it to the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, it was almost as the council acted as a rubber stamp to say, well, these are the books that have been moving through the churches for centuries um, and have been accepted. Now, these councils would have discussed, but they would have also discussed what should not be included, like uh, the gospel according to Peter or um, uh, the apocalypse of Peter or on and on. Or even Clement's letters, which are from a Christian perspective, but they're not considered divinely inspired for various reasons. <clears throat> and so modern biblical scholars must follow these and make their own decisions about authorship. And so this is a look behind of the formation of scripture, but it does not deny that it is God breathed. Um, so there's a notion that people think of the Bible as simply dictated 
that God spoke to them and they just kind of like mystics copied what God was telling them. But scripture doesn't even think of it or present itself as this way. Uh, now there were some under the explicit idea that God was impelling them to speak in a particular way. And so the prophet would say, thus says the Lord. Yet the prophetic books were not likely written by the prophet themselves. Rather, it's assumed that someone would copy down the prophet's sermons, and then that person would collect them into a whole and put them down as Isaiah or as Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And so some people think, well, if Jeremiah didn't write Jeremiah, then it's not divinely inspired. But that's not how it worked. There was a collaboration, and God was working through that collaboration. Uh, or some people may not even be aware that they were under divine compulsion. The psalmists were writing their own thoughts and prayers. And in the words of Walter Brueggemann, these prayers became God's words to us so that we might pray to God. And then also the notion of oral tradition and how they were collected. Luke even talks about collecting oral tradition and written tradition in order to present a case for Christ in his gospel account. And so God took up human communication, overseeing its shape and its transmission to communicate his specific purpose for his people, ultimately for the world to know about his salvation. Okay, so I just tried to deal with Tobin in terms of inconsistencies, prophecies, forgeries, fairy tales, and uh, one other inconsistencies. But here's where I conclude, okay? So these three scholars do not make an exhaustive argument against the Bible being God's inspired word. But they do make three significant ones. They say the Bible is too scientifically inaccurate, too textually inconsistent, and too unclear and easily misinterpreted to be God's divine words to us. And so the logical conclusion is toss it into the garbage bin. Uh, I attempted to respond to these in turn. While I couldn't take every specific example that they bring up uh, due to time, I did try to take enough time to show reasonable responses to their presuppositions and their accusations. Um, that's quite different than making a case that the Bible is God's word. I'm just trying to say that uh, we need to leave open the possibility of it being divinely inspired. Uh, the other lecture, the, um, there are lots of lecturers who make this case in Labrie and lots of scholars. Now, these authors basically think it's a slam dunk, shut the door. Um, there's no way that God could have spoken and that God couldn't have spoken truth. And all their evidence basically reconfirms their bias. They already were looking for that evidence and found it. But I try to say not so quickly. It may not be what one, the Bible may not be what one expects um, in a scientifically verifiable way. It may not be up to contemporary mores. But I've tried to argue in different ways is allowing us to ask the text um, is um, what they were trying to do is ask the text to answer questions it does not suggest to offer, um, or at least an offer or to offer answers in the ways that they expect or demand. 
It's just like expecting the Genesis creation account to give a blow-by-blow account of physical origins, and when it does not do so, say it's untrue. Um, It's to blame the Bible for not living up to what you think it should be, rather than to take it on for what it is and work it out in humility and openness. And when there's apparent conflict, then Christians try to work out why there is an apparent conflict. Is it a real conflict or just an apparent one? And this is one that we have to address with humility. Okay, my very last comment is to say that the Bible should not be get seen as giving exhaustive knowledge. It should not be seen as a guide to modern questions, such as cloning or astronomical findings. The Bible should not be seen as something it's not, a compendium of all information, as if we could look at it as an encyclopedia or as an index. Rather, its specific purpose is to express God's purposes with humanity so that they may know themselves, their context, and their God. Theologians say that the Bible gives us sufficient knowledge. The Bible gives us sufficient knowledge, sufficient knowledge unto salvation. This is not to say, um, and this is perhaps where the confusion can come in, that the Bible is merely a religious text a book just about religious things. Rather, it's a book that, um, that it claims to express the truth of all reality. The truth of that reality is not exhaustive, but it is central and key to understand who we are in the world around us. So while it does not speak about cloning or astrophysics, it can orient us to know that these things are not accidents, that humanity and human invention are subject to God's holiness and love, that creation is orderly, and that is beautiful, that is to be steward, and more. So perhaps even more simply, science might be able to explain the how, but not the why. And the Bible gives us an understanding of the why and what for. And when we approach it with this anticipation, we will discover how we might understand the world, even as scientists. 